Hello, I'm Lucy Reimer, Senior Commissioning Editor at Cambridge University Press, and I'm very pleased to introduce Michael Bennett, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Tasmania, author of the new book, War Against Smallpox, Edward Jenner and the Global Spread of Vaccination. Michael, welcome. Hello. Now, it's impossible to read your book without seeing it from the perspective of our current moment. Both the horror and the hope you depict in the history of smallpox will, I think, resonate strongly with readers in 2020. Perhaps you could begin by giving a brief introduction to smallpox prior to Edward Jenner. So we're looking at a disease that really dominated the imagination in the 18th century. Uh, most people uh, caught the disease. Most people in, in Europe and Asia uh, didn't avoid the disease if they lived to a good age. So it was something that hung over the population and uh, the disease uh, not only, of course, caused a lot of deaths, but also uh, caused a lot of disability. It was a major cause of blindness in the 18th century um, and it, it was really a horror to behold. Um, as I said before, in some ways, a lot more straightforward than the, the, the COVID experience. Um, People were all too familiar with smallpox, and by the 18th century, um, many people had become used to it. And that's one of the points, really, I suppose, of the present pandemic. Are we going to have to get used to COVID and used to the conditions and used to the social isolation uh, while we wait for a, a suitable vaccine? The other certainty that, that we, we're really still grappling with with COVID is, is whether or not uh, a first case gives any sort of immunity to subsequent cases. And here again, smallpox is relatively straightforward. People very early on, many centuries ago, must have come to realize that if they survived smallpox, generally they didn't get it again. And that meant, of course, that people were always there, or in most cases, uh, people were there to nurse their children through the disease. And uh, we know quite a lot of uh, women, for example, when they got married, uh, they made sure that they got smallpox first, if only to so that they could nurse their children, so that they wouldn't have to sort of push their children away when they got ill. Uh, so this was the, the world that people were living in. So, Michael, your book explores how Edward Jenner developed his ideas about the relationship between cowpox and smallpox in the 1790s. Jenner himself is a fascinating figure, and I was struck too by the role that animal-to-human transmission of disease played in the development of the smallpox vaccine. Yes, J Jenner was um, a country surgeon or physician based in uh, Berkeley in Gloucestershire, and he uh, was aware, of course, of local traditions uh, to do with cowpox infection providing surety against smallpox. Uh, that is a, a disease uh, afflicting cattle, particularly on the udders, pustules on the udders. And some people who had uh, been casually infected with this uh, cowpox uh, swore by its value in their later life that they didn't actually catch uh, smallpox. Now, what is important, of course, is that Jenner was, uh, being a practicing surgeon, he was very much interested in the, the practice of smallpox inoculation, that practice I've referred to whereby 
people were actually inoculated with smallpox in order to give them a mild dose, hopefully, and give them surety in the future. And in a sense, it was a large scale practice of smallpox inoculation that began to get a handle on what was, of course, a very hazy notion among country people in a few parts of England. What he found, of course, was that when he was inoculating with smallpox, a whole group of people, he'd find cases of people that uh, didn't react in the way they should to smallpox inoculation. And he would try again and gradually realized they were immune. And he'd, he'd then quiz them and say, well, have you had smallpox? And they'd say no, but sometimes they'd say, oh, well, but I've had cowpox. I was infected with cowpox. And I think that may, might have made a difference. So he's busily noting down these cases. Jenner is, is, is using a range of, uh, of ideas drawn from smallpox inoculation. And of course, he's also making some brilliant uh, leaps of speculation. Um, he actually believes that cowpox is, a, is, is in a sense, uh, uh, related to smallpox. A central theme in your book is that of humanitarian endeavour and human connectedness. And the scale and speed with which Jenner's ideas and the smallpox vaccine spread from a farm in rural England across the globe is truly incredible, especially considering that Europe was at war in this period. Your book stresses the interplay of the particular political and cultural contexts of the late 18th and early 19th century. Which aspects of this do you think were the most significant? We're looking at, at, at how, how things track in relation to the, um, the spread of uh, vaccination um, and the, the take up. We, we do see some, some interesting variables. Um, one, of course, is um, the structure of the profession, um, the levels of trust in the profession. So these are all variables. There are variables in terms of uh, the, the, the sorts of societies and governments that, uh, that, that are in control. Uh, there's the interest that, of course, in the English speaking world, um, uh, there's that sort of tradition really of the government remaining aloof from matters of health. It's not really generally concerned with matters of health. It leaves that to the family and to the medical marketplace. Um, so in in Britain and in the United States, certainly we see um, private initiative a lot more important in terms of um, in terms of take up of vaccination. <clears throat> With the ruling class uh, playing their part, but, but more uh, to encourage and to uh, perhaps uh, assist in terms of subscribing to societies to promote vaccination and so on. Uh, then we see in, in Europe, of course, the enlightened absolutisms, as they're called, the, 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 the more authoritarian regimes that still uh, now professing more to work for the public good than the, the power of the prince. And um, they, of course, are much more impressive in terms of setting up systems for introducing uh, vaccination. Um, so we, we see moves towards compulsory vaccination in some of these places, and we often see um, uh, both the administrative structures of those states and even the church in those states being drawn into the process of 
uh, promoting vaccination. Uh, this is most marked actually in the uh, in the Napoleonic world in France and also elsewhere in the Napoleonic Empire, where the regime insists that um, the prefects uh, organize local vaccination committees, make reports to Paris that the bishops are required to uh, preach sermons in favor of vaccination and so on and so forth. And uh, there is much more control of the cadre of newly uh, trained uh, medical men who are obliged to vaccinate uh, in, uh, the, the, in their districts and so on. Uh, so we see much more extensive compliance, though uh, not necessarily, of course, voluntary compliance with vaccination in those states. And then, of course, we see a, a range of uh, imperial and colonial contexts and even of course vaccination spreading across into territories where uh, the there is no colonial presence into places like uh, Vietnam and Thailand and so on in the early 19th century. So one really intriguing part of this story uh, is how they overcome the challenge of ensuring a supply of the vaccine and then transporting it around the world uh, in this period. Could you say a bit more about how they approach this particular problem? Yes, yeah, so at one level, supply should have been easy uh, in the sense that uh, Jenna um, obviously takes some cowpox and begins the process of vaccination. But cowpox is a very rare disease and in fact occurs only sporadically in uh, the the dairy districts around where Jenna lived and a few other areas. So there isn't actually cowpox on tap in that sort of way. That wasn't entirely a, an insuperable problem because as I've said before with relation to smallpox inoculation uh, while smallpox was always available, of course, for use in, 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 in prophylactically in, in, in inoculation, uh, many practitioners had made it a habit to set aside some smallpox matter, some lymph taken from a, a vesicle, a smallpox vesicle. They dried it and they kept it for the next time round, the next season. Um, smallpox tended to appear seasonally. And they would use that matter. And, and some of the practitioners, too, of course, would select which uh, smallpox matter they would keep. That is smallpox matter that they found not only effective, but also generating only a mild response. So this is what Jenner also did with, with cowpox. He set some aside, dried it and, and so on. Um, but the problem is that, that cowpox was a milder infection than, than smallpox. And... Uh, you know, in, in terms of the virus, it, it was more, more more a delicate flower and didn't survive all that well. So what we're faced with really in the early years of, of Jenner's sort of promotion of vaccination is there isn't much supply of cowpox. Um, and indeed, for about six months after he published his book in 1798, People were writing to him and he, he, he didn't have any, he had to admit that he didn't have any cowpox to send them and he didn't have any cowpox to conduct further experiments. Um, well, cowpox reappeared again and this time round they're much more careful about um, uh, preserving the cowpox and also setting up some uh, regularity in relation to cowpox inoculation so that they could generate 
their own supply of cowpox from the children they were vaccinating. Um, what they start doing in some places and groups of surgeons would get together and, and they would advertise that they would say, well, you know, come along and, and you can be vaccinated for free. Come along on Tuesday and Thursday morning, either Tuesday and Thursday mornings from nine till ten. And the reason was, of course, that they were depending on throughput and a child that came on Tuesday and was vaccinated, they'd say, well, come back a week on Thursday. And then the children on Thursday come back a week on Tuesday. And so there'd be children coming back with nice uh, ripe vesicles on their arm and they'd be punctured and that would that, that would provide the cowpox lymph, the vaccine for the next batch of, of kids. And by doing it by doing it that way, of course, they, they try to build a, a regular supply. But of course, it did keep on depending on more and more children coming along. So it was, it was, a, it was a bit of a problem. Um, so we've got then some attempts to try to preserve vaccine in dried form and distribute it through the post. It often enough didn't work, or for the most part, it didn't work when it arrived. But of course, if you sent enough samples of vaccine in the post, uh, they, they, the, the method was usually to have a, a bit of um, cotton and dump that into the, uh, the vesicle dry it and put it between glass and then send it. If you sent, an, sent it often enough, uh, there'd be a lucky strike and the, the person at the other end could actually start vaccinating. Uh, but the other method, of course, was that was used was arm to arm transmission, where you um, uh, inoculate a child with cowpox and then you take them over a distance. And a few days later, of course, they've got a pustule that then can infect people in the in the next town along. But these systems got very elaborate because they created vaccination chains whereby uh, they could take groups of children and vaccinate them serially. And this was the way that, for example, uh, when uh, cowpox was brought to Mumbai, Bombay in India, um, it was transported round India uh, generally by uh, vaccinating a number of children who would then be escorted uh, a few days along the road to the next big town and uh, vaccination could be started. This was the method used by the um, the emperor of Russia, the Tsar of Russia, uh, who uh, wanted to send out vaccine through the Russian Empire. Uh, and uh, this was a very big sort of itinerary that he developed, that was developed in 1802. Uh, taking uh, initially vaccine around the provinces of uh, Russia east, uh, west of the Urals. Later on, there was a, a great expedition into Siberia. And in 1803, uh, the King of Spain used this method to take vaccine across the Atlantic to uh, the Spanish Empire and then through the Spanish Empire and around the world, in fact, to the Philippines, uh, to Macau and then back to back to Spain. So an incredible feat. And, and what, what it uh, led me to think of, of course, was the world arm to arm, because quite literally, you've got a, a network around the world where children have gone arm to arm um, and uh, across lines of race and caste and religion and so on, uh, right around the globe. Um, in 1805, um, uh, vaccine comes to 
Canton or Guangdong in China. And it's come from both directions. It's come from British India, it's, but uh, it first of all comes across the Pacific uh, from the Spanish vaccine expedition, from, uh, from uh, most proximately from uh, Philippines and Macau. It's it's a wonderful image, the idea of the, the children arm to arm around the world. Um, but of course, the, the story of the smallpox vaccine uh, was not without setbacks uh, and controversies, uh, including, uh, you mentioned in the book, the early anti-vaccination movements. Yes, uh, it's it's interesting. One of the um, one of the things about uh, the image of a war against smallpox that I that I I've remarked on before is, is is the way in which, of course, it is it is spread around the world during a time of, of war, and the way in which uh, military language, martial imagery, actually uh, becomes more emphasised in relation to the disease itself, so that uh, people talk about the enemy, smallpox, as the greatest enemy. You know, Bonaparte is is uh, is bad enough, but you know, smallpox is the real enemy, uh, and and the way too in which uh, the uh the, this sort of language is used in respect of people who oppose vaccination and uh it intrigued me because uh there is a very real sharpness of uh language in respect of both the vaccination lobby and the people of course who are not so impressed with with vaccination and uh either challenge it or resist it in in various sorts of ways and it struck me that it's it's really the, the first example I can think of where you do see this sort of denialism uh, issue. You know, the, the first time that in a, in a sense we're, we're seeing, I mean, obviously scientific ideas in the past, there have been uh, attacks on them and debates and this sort of thing. But the first time we're actually seeing uh, something that everyone has an opinion about and where um, there's a lot of discussion in the media, there's a lot of fake news, and there's a lot of anger being generated by people who are um, covering up or not covering up or, or, uh, or, or, or claiming what isn't true about cases and so on and so forth. And so anti-vaccination is, is very interesting from the outset. There are a couple of strands to it. One, of course, is, first of all, that, that many people felt um, that they shouldn't be giving their children an animal disease. Um, you know, they've got this beautiful little baby and uh, they've been asked to uh, put in the arm some sort of disease from an animal. And of course, they don't really know what that disease is. There really is a very serious yuck factor in terms of responses to uh, to cowpox. And this is, this is, of course, a scene in different contexts around the world. Um, alongside that, of course, the uh, Jenner and his lobby are, are, are presenting the idea, of course, that no, the cow is a very wholesome animal and um, the, there's this almost cult of the cow that develops. And it, it's, it's nicely attuned, of course, here, not with science, but with uh, romanticism, the pastoral and so on, the, the, uh, the idea that uh, this, is, this is something natural. <laughs> so again, you've got all these interesting uh, twists and turns. Um, one of the forces behind anti-vaccination in Britain and to some degree elsewhere is a feeling of many people, of course, that smallpox inoculation worked well enough. And uh, you, you can imagine hearing them saying, well, 
smallpox inoculation. We know where we stand with smallpox inoculation. We get smallpox and we know that we're then clear. We're not so sure about cowpox. And uh, even if we accept that it's it's not going to do us too much harm, there is a danger maybe that it's not going to uh, give us lifetime protection in the way that smallpox inoculation did. And in this context, of course, you've got the problem that cowpox inoculation has taken off in a, in a very big way. And that there are all sorts of people who decide that they'll jab in something that they picked up from a from a, the cow in the in the paddock into their children and uh, find that, of course, that doesn't work or it does some uh, produces some contamination. Uh, there are a lot of people who, who don't follow the protocols and, uh, of course, don't particularly and that they don't have the experience to know whether whether a true vaccine response has happened so jenna was always very particular you know you've got to sort of do this in a particular way and then you've got to check the vaccine response and he, he the, the he distributed of course prints showing what a vaccine uh, vesicle should look like after after a certain period of time and so on interestingly this this anti-vaccination uh, didn't happened so strongly elsewhere in Europe, partly because um, uh, they were alert to what was happening in Britain. They avoided some of the problems, but they also, uh, of course, clamped down in terms of censorship on anyone criticising vaccination. Obviously, as people were vaccinated, smallpox began to disappear. And that meant, of course, that people ceased to vaccinate. And in addition, because smallpox disappeared what people at the time didn't know and we're only becoming clear about this you know in more recent times is that uh, they weren't having their immunity topped up by exposure to smallpox cases so what we didn't realize was that people living in a smallpox environment many of them were having subclinical cases that is asymptomatic cases uh, and particularly those people who've been vaccinated, their immunity was being topped up simply by visiting their young cousin who had smallpox or whatever. As smallpox disappeared, then there's a sort of double whammy. And when it comes back, it hits, hits, hits very hard. The, the question of medical authority and the role of the state in what we now think of as public health uh, runs throughout your book. Uh, you, you discuss philanthropy as a major driving force, uh, but you also allude to the less benign aspects of this story. Uh, the vaccination of enslaved communities uh, in the interests of plantation economies uh, and the control of colonial bodies via vaccination campaigns in India, for example. Mm. Yes, this this is the um, one of the interesting issues in respect of vaccination is, is of course, uh, who gives permission for someone to be vaccinated. And of course, some of these problems had arisen with respect to smallpox inoculation, where um, it was certainly accepted that, that people shouldn't be inoculated with smallpox unless they um, uh, were willing to have that operation done and uh, or their parents, of course, uh, accepted that operation for their for their children. But with smallpox inoculation, one of the one of the issues that, that came up a little bit was uh, in some villages, for example, um, the parish would insist that the poor were inoculated with smallpox um, simply because, of course, the poor were a charge on the rates 
And uh, if they had smallpox, then of course they threatened the community, but also they added expense to the uh, for the overseers of the poor and so on. Um, but even even in those cases, we do, we do get the sense that 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 um, someone could resist, uh, and you know someone were generally entitled to resist. Uh, uh, being inoculated with smallpox, although they run the risk perhaps of not getting their dole or, or whatever it might be, there, there would be that sort of economic pressure. When it comes to vaccination, the, a similar sort of pattern obtains and it's a little bit difficult to know how far, for example, in um, in, in Britain, of course, we're looking at the age of um, the end of the slave trade, and really there aren't uh, slaves in, in 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 Britain. Even in the United States, there's, there's probably some sense that uh, the slaves have the right not to be uh, vaccinated um, in in that sort of plantation mode. Although, of course, there must have been considerable pressure on them. Um, so we, you know, we do we do. I, I found sort of evidence of of, of sort of both. Um, what uh, what was happening in place in the Spanish Empire, though, we do we do find that when slaves were being landed uh, in places like Cuba, and indeed in the French colony in Mauritius, for example, when slaves were brought in there. Um, they were often routinely vaccinated, and almost certainly that would be, uh, they'd be required to be vaccinated, they'd be forcibly vaccinated, one imagines. Um, in, these, in, in many of these contexts, of course, the, um, the, 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 the likelihood of them catching smallpox naturally would have been very high. Um, so the, the, some of the most appalling outbreaks of smallpox were on some of the slave ships and so on. Um, but they also become it becomes very useful because it means that they generate a supply. So in Havana, for example, in Cuba, um, the the guy Dr. Rone, who's who's been promoting vaccination, gets really annoyed by by pointing to the fact that um, the ordinary people aren't having their children vaccinated and depending very much on the slaves being vaccinated who are being brought into the colony and they provide of course the the vaccine then that becomes useful in if there's a smallpox epidemic but it, it, it is the case that that those sorts of systems enabled uh, a build-up of supply of uh, vaccine and uh, in the case of um, Australia it's very interesting to see how Mauritius uh, served a little bit as a vaccine depot for uh, the Southern Oceans. That is when uh, they ran out of vaccine in 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 Sydney. Uh, generally, they could get vaccine from Mauritius fairly quickly. And one suspects that this this has to do with the the, the sort of economy of, of 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 vaccination. In respect of the in respect to the colonies, again, um, vac vaccine is sort of offered to the to uh, in India, for example, to the uh, Indian population, um, many of them take it up. Uh, many of them don't take it up. Uh, there is no uh, compulsion. Um, similarly, in the Spanish Empire, with the um, with the indigenous peoples in parts of Latin of Spanish America and so on, um, you know, there are stories of, of villages that resist 
the doctor bringing vaccine and and, and so on. Uh, so the, there's a lot of hustle, a lot of a lot of pressure, doubtless, and a lot of sometimes tensions arising from it. But because vaccination was never really dangerous, uh, no one uh, really suffered very much from being inoculated with cowpox. Um, uh, then uh, generally you've got some sort of acceptance. Pressure came, I suppose, from, from people who were wanting ways of enforcing vaccination because of the corresponding problems of smallpox uh, in the community. Um, the, uh, the impact on the economy of smallpox. Uh, if there's a, a major epidemic in a town, obviously, uh, businesses have to close, there's no market held, um, people's livelihoods are in danger and so on. So uh, the, there, there are all those sorts of informal pressures that must have been very significant. But all these things are, uh, the, the, the major issues in relation to colonial medicine probably come rather later in the 19th century in, in places like India, uh, where uh, there is much more uh, medical intervention attempts to control uh, public health and and so on, rather than in, in the in the period that I'm looking at in the early 19th century, where um, the, there really isn't so, so much in the way of of, of compulsion, except uh, at the level of of, of generally um, finding household slaves and servants and so on as amenable to the process that then helps perhaps uh, the practice establish itself in a, in a particular locality and so on. In closing your book, Michael, you note the importance of an assumption of a common humanity, a disease that was a threat to all and the pursuit of a solution that was to be applicable and available to all. What inspiration do you think we might take from Edward Jenner and the global spread of vaccination as we confront the coronavirus pandemic? Well, I mean, the inspiration probably is is that uh, common humanity. It, it, it is something that um, affects us all. And although um, responses to disease, of course, find lots of find lots of um, ways of uh, of uh, sort of seeding resentments and uh, rivalries and so on. Uh, nonetheless, I think it, it, it's something that that um, we we do see as as. Uh, as, as common, um, and um, I'm particularly stressing that perhaps in relation to around about 1800, when uh, we don't see perhaps quite the hardening of uh, racial uh, lines and uh, ideology, ideologies of race that we see later in the 19th century. So uh, it's more in a sense perhaps reflecting some of the cosmopolitanism of the 18th century rather than the the harder nationalisms and uh, racist attitudes of later in the in the uh, in the 19th century so it always struck me as quite interesting that that um uh, there doesn't seem to have been any sort of uh, resentment or, or um, reaction about taking for example uh, cowpox limp from the ch uh, from a a black child and giving it to a white child, for example, and, and, and so on. That, that, the, that sort of interest of the of of of, uh, of the, the sort of common humanity, and and of course, uh, I mean the ways in which uh, 
um, th through diseases like smallpox, people recognise that, that people of different races went through the disease in, in pretty much the same sort of way. I mean, obviously, the, the variables and social conditions and, and other health issues and so on and so forth. But there is, is, is that sort of patterning. Um, the uh, inspiration, I think, comes from the way in which Jenna presented it to the world very much as, uh, as, a, as a free gift, as a blessing to the world, and the way it was taken up in, in, in like form by many other people around the world. Uh, there, were, there were some people who tried to make some money from it, um, uh, and, but, but generally failed. It, it was the sort of thing that... Um, uh, in the end became so general that that it was very hard to make a profit from uh, practicing vaccination um, the uh, the world was at war I mean a major conflict between Britain and France um, but for example um, special permits were obtained for uh, an English doctor to take uh, cowpox to Paris in 1800 to oversee the first successful experiments in cowpox in, 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 in Napoleonic France. And then, of course, uh, the French, too, then uh, were also distributing the vaccine freely through France and through, through neighbouring states and so on. So this remarkable, uh, there was never any sense at all that uh, anyone's going to um, not pass on. I mean, that they couldn't really quite stop stockpile the cowpox, but they, uh, um, uh, it, it, a lot of people took a lot of effort, if you like, to uh, uh, pass, it around, pass it around the world and maintain it. And um, in, the, in, in this part of the world and in the Indian Ocean, for example, the, uh, the Dutch and the French and the British authorities, again, in time of war, were still under white flags passing uh, vaccine back and forth and, and, and so on. So that's that's sort of source of inspiration. I, I guess the other thing is there, there are probably more cautionary tales and uh, um, we have got the problem that it took a long, long time for um, smallpox to be eradicated in the world. It, it uh, enormous progress in it retrospect was made really in the first decades of the 19th century. Uh, and then, of course, uh, it all became too hard and um, uh, growth of population and so on and so forth. And it, it was not until the 1960s that we again got that international collaborative effort to eradicate smallpox. And uh, I guess this was uh, you know, a crowning achievement, really, of the uh, World Health Organization to eradicate smallpox. Um, but other diseases have proved a lot more, a lot less tractable. Uh, as I said at the beginning, that smallpox, in some ways, was uh, relatively straightforward to uh, to deal with once you uh, once you found the will and the way, and there were sufficient resources and commitments to do so. Well, thank you, Michael. That's been very thought provoking. Thank you so much for for sharing this with us today. Thank you.